welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Peck, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Well, my name is Garrett Peck. I'm an author, historian, and tour guide in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I used to live in the Washington, D.C. area, and uh, that's where I started uh, becoming a tour guide. Uh, my very first tour was about prohibition in the D.C. area called the Temperance Tour, and that led me to then writing uh, eight different books, of which five have prohibition baked into the topic. It's just kind of this this gift that keeps on giving, you know, it's such a fascinating topic. And we're endlessly wondering, why did prohibition ever happen? And why, why did it fail? I, w- I would say, why did prohibition happen? And you're, I mean, from your work and your research, and also, I mean, you do the, you do the tours, and then you had to write a book about, I mean, that's interesting to me. I mean, what made you start getting interested in just wanting to do tours and everything? Yeah, I'm, I was working on my very first book, which was called uh, The Prohibition Hangover, it came out in, in 2009. And I was working in telecommunications for my career. So here I am writing this book about sociology and history and uh, you know, basically about how Americans got over prohibition to where you know, two thirds of us now drink and it's not really considered a sin anymore, um, especially among Protestants. It used to be. It's what we call a fun night now. Right, ex- exactly, exactly. But you know, now there's no more stigma around drinking like there used to be among, among say, my grandmother's generation. She was born in 1913 and, and had that. That sense of you drink, don't let anyone see you because they're going to think that you're a, a drunk, you know. So um, that's uh, that was the premise of the book, and I was trying to sell it, and I kept getting rejected because it's like, what's your what's your platform? You know, I'm working in telecommunications, but I don't particularly have a background in sociology. I do in history. So at that point, I started writing uh, freelance articles for the for the alcoholic beverage industry, and on top of that, a friend suggested that I set up a walking tour, <laughs> which I did. And that turned out really well. Now I'm, now I'm a tour guide full time. It's really, really fun. I, I love doing that. And it's a way of teaching history, but without having to grade papers. Now, when it comes to the prohibition, I mean, can you take me through like at least your perspective? What was your perspective of alcohol before you started writing your book and before you even had the interest into it? I mean, were you, did you drink already? Did you, you know, not really care too much if people drank around you? Like I have friends that are completely like don't have a drink around me at all. It's not that they're alcoholics or anything. It's just that they just don't like that vibe. And it's usually their family background has happens to do a lot with it. Me, my parents were DJs. So it's like, I don't care if anybody has a drink beside me. I like to socially drink, but without it, I mean, I don't really need to drink at all but there's a lot of people that you know they prefer to drink at home yeah i'm, I'm i do most of my drinking at home here as well i'm not a heavy drinker as, as well but usually like one beer a day when i get done with work um i started drinking when i was 16 and when i was an exchange student in germany and that was the drinking age in germany and discovered how much i love beer <laughs> and germany is so different most european countries which is simply just alcohol is something to enhance a meal or a social occasion so we'd go out with my host family. We'd go out to a, to a pub, a Kneipe, as it's called in German, and uh, we'd go out and have a beer and just have a nice little conversation. And it's a very supervised thing because you're there with your parents. And, and I discovered this is really, really nice. You get to meet other people. You know, the Germans talk about Gemütlichkeit, which is this, you know, little cozy atmosphere where you're having a nice conversation, et cetera. Um, and discovered like one of the greatest aspects of Western civilization, the beer garden, where you get to sit outdoors and with nice weather and have trees and birds chirping and you're having a nice little beer and just having a nice relevant conversation. Alcohol does that. It releases inhibitions. So alcohol certainly is not good for us health-wise, but uh, it it does improve our sociability as long as you're not someone who's really aggressive or whatever, but uh, it does reduce your inhibitions. So you're more likely to actually have a conversation and speak honestly with another person about things. So there are some social upsides to alcohol. 
Now, when it comes to, I mean, drinking limit in Germany being low, is that just because, I mean, why do we have it as 21? Did you ever look into that and see if, is that because of like the prohibition or just our history with alcohol or if we just deemed that this was the proper thing? It was 21 because in the U.S. Constitution, which we framed in 1787, the era of adulthood was 21, which we later on reframed as 18 after the Vietnam War. So... Oh, because you can get drafted, then you can drink. Okay, I got you. Exactly. That's why we changed the the the, the vote back in the 1970s. Uh, all because of the Vietnam War, because we were sending men off to war, and some women, mostly, mostly men. And we thought, well, if you know, if you if you're old enough to go off to war, then you should be old enough to vote. And at that point, a lot of people started questioning, well, why isn't the drinking age then 18? Because legally, you're an adult at age 18. You get to you get to vote at 18. So why can't you drink at age 18? So a lot of states then lowered the drinking age. And then in the 1980s, they under Ronald Reagan and others against drunk driving, they pushed it back up to 21. Well, wait, so why did it get, if it got pushed up to 21 because of mothers against drunk driving, is that just because there was a young adolescent kids or 18 year olds that were driving and then drinking as well too? But if people do that at 21 as well too, why is 21 just the safe bet? Yeah, yeah. and it goes back to the framers, the constitution, considering that 21 was the year of adulthood. We don't consider that anymore, personally. Um, we now consider 18 to be the year of, of legal adulthood. As soon as I get kicked out of the house, that's when, that's when, that's when yeah, you're in the basically, adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you still can't drink, you know, although it's obviously widely available and easy to get if you want to get it, you know. So it's, it's so weird. So we created this taboo around alcohol in American society that Germany and other countries simply don't have, where drinking is just a relevant part of, you know, everyday life and, you know, have a moderate amount with a meal or something. Instead, we, we we have this, you know, tut, tut, not till you're 21, and which then creates a whole taboo around youth who are all like, oh, wow, alcohol, let's go get drunk, you know, because we're getting away with something. So it creates this weird vibe among younger people of over drinking because exactly because it's a taboo because we all like like disobeying the law or rules, et cetera, if you like we're getting away with something. And that's a big problem in American society that, you know, our youth drink too much, although things are changing, I think, the Gen Z especially is you know going with sober curious and so on and that's probably a healthier attitude around alcohol it's not something really to be messed around with alcohol truly is not good for you there's no health benefits to drinking but you know we all like the euphoria from it etc it just shuts the thoughts down for a little bit but i would have to say that would probably be like my parents generation i feel like if you had maybe like my generation a little bit younger they have a different reaction towards alcohol only because their parents generation probably drank a lot and then it might have kind of reversed a little bit not just in like my household i'm just talking about in general i just noticed that a lot of people are more hesitant on like yeah i don't really want to drink and drive i kind of want to do this which is maybe that's commercials that's a bunch of stuff we were very influenced with that when other people didn't have the opportunity to but also i think everyone knows someone who died in like in an alcohol related incident or something like that where it kind of brings that impression on you of like yeah maybe i should just if i'm gonna party uber and then uber helps as well too exactly yeah everyone's got the uber app today or lyft and so there's lots of alternatives to it which is good to see i think people are aware about drunk driving uh, I live in New Mexico, the leading state for drunk driving. So we're a low population state and we're a huge state. And so we just have huge issues with alcohol. We tried to raise the alcohol taxes last year with the legislature that failed. And so it's cheap to buy alcohol here in, in the state. And in return, a lot of people drink too much and then drive. Now, what's the average population, I would say, I mean, age range when it comes into modern times today of people that drink alcohol? People, I think it's actually the age is kind of boosting up. It's been for, for a while. People oftentimes have the first drink while they're in their early teens. <clears throat> and uh, I think that is starting to raise up a little bit higher as people, as younger people in particular are second guessing now, do they need to drink it at all? 
which is which is kind of cool to see. Now, but, but older generations, though, that's like, I mean, 35 years old, 40 years old, are we talking about those are like the, probably the most percentage of drinkers, like everyday drinkers, I would say, right? Well, probably so, yeah. And, and, and boomers. I mean, the baby boom is the first generation that had no guilt over drinking. <laughs> so because, you know, they're... Their parents and their grandparents had lived through the Great Depression and 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 saw uh, prohibition in the 1920s and just said this isn't going to work. So, because I'm wondering if it's like the same kind of time thing. Because if you go back to like the prohibition, was it younger kids that were drinking as much that might have been a problem as well too, or was it just older people that were drinking? Like I think like who was using the most amount of alcohol? It, it was really across the board. I mean, it's very very famous. So you have young women. Uh, cutting their hair and dressing up in flapper outfits and so on. But like everyone was on the game you know, of all ages. This is kind of incredible. But young people always get the attention. Same thing for marketing to this day, right? <laughs> so much advertising is directed at young people. So what was the explanation for the prohibition, like from the people that were trying to ban the alcohol? Were they saying, I mean, I would have to feel like you would get a lot of people on board if you just said, it's because the youth, the youth is doing it. But then you could put like age limits and all this type of stuff. But then it would be like, well, that might be difficult to, guess what age range i would say like even then the 21 is still a question for me it's just like it's just something we go by i mean you could say 24 you could say 25 but back then when the prohibition was first starting how did they sales pitch it to people like i mean i know they had to force down and really crack down the law and everything but there's a lot of people that were like either moonshiners or they were doing something with alcohol where it was like this is what had been legal for so long and now you're about to shut down everybody's business not just a little bit but nobody's doing alcohol yeah yeah it's such a fascinating topic and it's a fairly uh, complicated answer <laughs> to, to this question here. But um, uh, where this whole this whole movement, it's called temperance, by the way, it started in the 1820s when America was on going under uh, a major whiskey binge. And the result was then all the Protestant churches got together and decided that no one should drink alcohol at all. So it wasn't about Jesus moderating, as you think from the word temperance, it means to temper, to moderate like weather. Uh, in this case, they decided that no one, there was no safe, safe level for anyone to drink alcohol at all. Therefore, the entire nation should abstain. That really goes against American culture because we've always been a drinking culture. And you fast forward that to a century later to World War I. And at that point, the leading temperance organization known as the Anti-Saloon League basically used heavy propaganda against, against the German Americans who were also the brewers, which has been our national beverage since the Civil War time to basically marginalize all the brewers and anyone who was drinking beer and push through then the 18th Amendment, the Prohibition Amendment during the war. So everyone simply thought, saw this as a big patriotic act. Oh yeah, we need to, we need to stop drinking so we can support our troops to, to defeat the German army during World War I. Nevertheless, the fact that the German army gave its own soldiers beer as did the French army and the, and the British army, et cetera. But this is all propaganda because of the war. And so prohibition goes into effect on January 16th, 1920. Most of the states had ratified the amendment during the war itself, which is pretty amazing. So again, it was that wartime fervor of, of supporting uh, supporting the cause. Wait, was the was the depression late late 20s, right? And kind of, uh, I wouldn't say early starts, in, Yeah, the depression starts basically the late, late 1929 with the stock, stock market crash. Do you think that a lot of it has to do with maybe the prohibition in the 20s as well? So I'm mean, depending on how long it lasted, but I wonder if like that's a big alcohol taken away from even for a brief amount of time. It feels like, I mean, if it's already built that much up in society already. Mm -hmm. yeah, the depression is the key reason why prohibition comes undone. So it, take, it took one crisis to create prohibition, World War I, and then it took another crisis to undo it. So in 1929, 1930, the Democrats figure out, you know what? 
we lost a quarter million jobs in 1920 when prohibition went into effect. Wouldn't be nice to have those jobs back now that 25% of the workforce is out of work. So the Democrats really seized upon this issue and then ran on that in 1930, 1932, as did Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president who was elected in 1932. They ran on the repeal platform. And the country was sick of prohibition by this point. <laughs> and so that became a major, major selling point for the country. Now, did they turn on the churches? I mean, if the, how did the churches even come to the initial decision of kind of banning this alcohol or banning? I mean, how did they know which ones to choose as well, too? I mean, I know wine's used in like or it's mentioned in the literature when it comes to religious texts. So I'm just curious, like, were they just taking that one out or for maybe ritual purposes, I would say it would be OK. But spirits comes from something. There has to be some type of religious connection to the word spirits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the, the word alcohol itself is an Arabic term. Alcohol, A-L-K-O-H-L. So um, the churches themselves are divided over this question, and you see which ones supported the temperance movement. They were the ones that at the time were the evangelical Protestant churches. So the Methodists were the leading church in the in the temperance movement, and they, they signed up in, in 1832. And then on top of that, you had the Baptists, who a lot of Baptists are still dry to this day, although publicly dry, privately wet. <laughs> As oftentimes is the case, <laughs> um, the Mormons, you know, the Mormon church you know, was founded in the 1830s. And so we had all these organizations that were founded right around that time, the 1830s, all embraced temperance. And many of them are still are to this day. And you see this in communion or the Eucharist if you're Catholic. So those churches that embraced the temperance movement to this day still have grape juice at communion. You have other churches that were not part of the evangelical fervor. They still have wine. So you see that, for example, with the Lutherans, the Catholics. Uh, the Orthodox uh, Christians, along with the Orthodox Jews, <laughs> um, and uh, Episcopalians, you know, they, they never joined up with the temperance movement, and that's why they still have wine. Why, why did they not do that? That's so weird. That's, I mean, that's complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's also part of the propaganda, though, um, of the time of the temperance movement. So you had, for example, <laughs> uh, in New Jersey, there was a, a man, uh, a, a dentist named Dr. Welch, you might recognize that name, who uh, part, part of the Protestant propaganda was that Jesus, in fact, never did turn water into wine, even though it's supposedly his first miracle. So instead, he turned it into grape juice. Well, grape juice didn't exist. There was no way to make it. But they simply just assumed that Jesus didn't drink because that was their values that they were then imposing upon Jesus. And even though... Jews drink. It's just actually part, part, a daily part of the ritual. And every Friday night, you have a glass of wine with Shabbat dinner and so on. But uh, I don't think many of these Protestants knew many Jews. So, um, so anyway, so in finally New, New Jersey, Dr. Welch had studied Louis Pasteur, the French, great French scientist, who figured out how to pasteurize grape juice, which is to say just halt fermentation right when you crush those grapes, you then pasteurize it. And that kills the enzymes on it and prevents fermentation from happening. You can take any fruit and crush it. You might have noticed that if you're eating an orange that's been sitting on the counter too long, you peel it and you're like, this tastes kind of funny, right? It's fermented. It's just a natural process, you know? So, but if you pasteurize something, that'll halt the fermentation. And so after that, all the churches then lined up, started using, well, it says grape juice to, uh, to serve at communion. Yeah, that's they a good business plan. Day. Yeah, <laughs> this is all because of, of the temperance movement. <laughs> When it when it comes to the prohibition era, I mean, like when that was in effect and they were banning alcohol, I mean, 
how different like who's the i guess which regions did they affect first like i would have to think in the south where people were maybe bootleggers or maybe people that were running moonshine or already had kind of illegal operations i mean i know that came because of the prohibition movement there's a lot of people that were running these but they, these people had their business setups i would have to think a little bit before as well too and then it, all this shutting down they just had to do it secretly but which states did they have to crack down on first i feel like you'd have a map with like a dartboard and just be like all right we know this one's got everything in it and this one's got everything in it yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting to see that they Temperance really started in the in the Northeast. I mean, so many of our social reform movements are incubated in New England and in New York throughout the country. You, you think about it. temperance, abolitionism, gay rights, women's rights, they all start in the Northeast. And then they kind of move across the country. Um, in this case here, after the Civil War, the temperance movement moved to the Midwest and South, and that was really the base. And you see that even to this day, wherever you see dry counties in the country, they tend to be in the Midwest and the South. So not so much the areas where Catholics are. So uh, an interesting state to study is Kentucky because it's sort of divided between Catholics and Baptists. <laughs> so you have all the all the dry counties are Catholic dominated. Sorry, all the wet counties are Catholic dominated and the dry counties are still Baptist dominated. So lots of Baptist preachers are there keeping those counties dry. One by one, every time we have a recession, counties are taken off the list of dry counties because economically at this point, it makes no sense anymore. You lose all this revenue. You know, tourists come through, they want to be able to have a beer with their dinner or a glass of wine, and you're losing all that revenue, all the tax dollars you can get from it. And younger people, you know, from, well, from baby boomers on, it's just isn't, temperance just doesn't speak to them anymore. Um, you know, we all, most of us now socially drink and we don't consider it a sin. So one by one, these counties are kind of falling by the wayside, but there's still several hundred of them left here in the country. Real, I can't, that sounds unimaginable to me. I mean, I don't know. I don't live in a dry county. I live in, I mean, you can go to a liquor store right down the street, but in some places that they still have a dry county. Is that just because it's like one of those methods of old where it's like, I don't know, we've just been doing it like this for generations. So we just keep on doing it. And no, everyone like knows that it's kind of BS, but at this point they're just like, we just keep doing it because why not? Yeah, it's, it's a big part of it. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes change is really, really hard, especially since something has been in place now for close to a hundred years. But um, increasingly you get younger people in there saying like, you know what, this makes no sense. People are just simply driving over the border to the next county, loading up on liquor and bringing it back. You know, there's nothing to stop them from doing that unless you're going to set up police checkpoints, which is people would protest. You know, meanwhile, the county is losing out all this tax revenue. So it's fascinating to see this. I, I remember when Evanston in Illinois went wet. Evanston was where um, Frances Willard lived. She was the head of the Women's, Women's Christian Temperance Union. It's where Northwestern University is. So it's a super elite suburb of northern suburb of Chicago. So with, you know, full of middle class, upper middle class people and well-educated people. And then finally, I forget, this is a decade or two ago, they finally went wet. <laughs> but just the, the the history of Evanston and the WC2 being there had kept the town from going wet. And then finally they had a referendum. They decided, you know what, we're just going to go do it. And, and it's changed everything. Now you go to pizza parlor and get a beer, a glass of wine with it. But it's <laughs> sometimes change is hard. And then finally it comes and it's overwhelming, you know. Now, through your research of the Prohibition era, I mean, did you come across any myths or things that obviously might be taught in an education system? Like I, like I said, my education system did not teach too much about the Prohibition era. I mean, they taught that it was like a ban from alcohol and all this, and then it ended. But there wasn't a whole full deep dive of education. I'm just curious if there's anything out there that's kind of been proved wrong or maybe history has kind of shown a different perspective of something we didn't know back then or at least now. Yeah, I've got several myths I can talk about. It's always so always so fascinating. 
Um, let's start off with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which generated a, an educational system to go into classrooms to terrify children into not drinking. Oh, God. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, it's so fascinating. So this is going to have a little uh, parallel to a certain commercial back from the 1980s about the drug wars. So uh, what they would do, they, the whole the idea was to scare children like my grandmother, born in 1913, into not drinking alcohol by terrifying them into thinking how much alcohol is going to damage their lives. So for example, you have an instructor, and this is all pseudoscience, by the way. Um, they'd go in, they would bring like a cow's brain or a sheep's brain, and a brain that's nice and pink, and then have like a beaker of alcohol. And then with the kids right there in the presence of the room, they would pour the beaker of alcohol onto the brain and it would turn gray, right? For all the kids' eyes. And the kids would all shriek. And they're like, that's that's what alcohol does to your brain. Actually, no, that's not what happens at all. But that's the pseudoscience. Um, alcohol it's first the goes scrambled through. egg thing in the frying pan where they said, this is your brain on drugs. You remember this commercial? Yes, exactly. It's way oversimplifying, you know, just trying to terrify people. And it doesn't work, right? I mean, people are going to make their own decisions about whether it's drugs or alcohol. But this is pseudoscience, you know? So did they like did they not try and practice more of a balance to it or is it just about scaring them straight like that whole scare straight method just to see if like later they would have this uh, adverse reaction to if anybody ever brought alcohol out which would explain like I, i've met some people that if they're around alcohol it's me like get that thing away from me it's like a sin i'm just like what are we talking it's just a it's it's a liquid it doesn't move it's not going to attack you but people are just completely torn away from it mm -hmm. yeah a lot of that's going to be someone's background you know, what they grew up with, especially if their parents had told them that alcohol is evil, et cetera. You know, we used to consider alcohol to be demon rum or John Barleycorn, he had his names for it, et cetera. But most of society, American society, doesn't consider things that way. Yeah. The other uh, mythology, let's look at it from the other end, which is today. Like when I wrote The Prohibition Hangover back in 2009, we still had a fair number of assumptions that alcohol had some health benefits for you. We had, for example, the French paradox, which is, okay, the French smoke cigarettes and have a high fat diet because eat a lot of cheese and foie gras etc and yet they're remarkably healthy so we believe that was because they had a small amount of alcohol every day we, we believed that alcohol raises your hdl cholesterol that's the good cholesterol to fight against the the bad cholesterol ldl or low low um low level cholesterol um and then in recent years more and more research has come out on this showing that alcohol actually has no health benefit whatsoever in other words, drinking for health is not a reason why you should drink. You know, for so many years, so many doctors prescribed patients for older people, like, hey, have a glass of wine every day. It's good for you. It's got resveratrol, et cetera. And now they're realizing this is actually not good advice. Um, at the same time, there's no help public health advocates are saying don't drink because they understand that prohibition didn't work and that people are going to drink anyways. But rather, the, the idea here is drink less. You know, so I've cut my own drinking down. Most days nowadays, I, I have one beer after, after work. It's just kind of love cracking the, the can open and just enjoying that. It's just a nice little transition to the evening. And, and uh, this is kind of my little ritual. But I generally don't drink more than that, you know, because after all, alcohol is not healthy. So I think that's one of those really interesting myths that a recent myth that um, we've now rather shattered. So, you know, what don't, about, folks, um, don't drink alcohol for health. It's not healthy for you. What about <laughs> In moderation, it's probably not going to harm you. But that's the key thing, moderation. Yeah. You drink heavily, like three drinks or more, then there's a whole bunch of health, bad health impacts like for your heart, especially cancer. I mean, alcohol is a carcinogen, so it causes a whole bunch of different kinds of cancer, which you don't need to get. What about uh, for sleep, like drinking alcohol for sleep? Oh, terrible. Oh, no, no, no. 
when, when you go to bed, go to bed sober. So it messes up with your REM sleep. I'll oh, see. I'm an insomniac. So that's the only way I can get sleep. Oh man. Um, there's better ways to do it. I mean, have you tried CBD gummies? Those I work? have, I've tried melatonin, none of it. I mean, I think I even took that prescribed me something. And when I took it, I slept 20 minutes and then I was up and I wasn't supposed to be up. And it was like everything, like my brain shut off and it was like, I'm still awake though. Like I remember walking around a store and just going in and out of like consciousness, basically of like, I only remember certain bits and pieces of it, yeah. but I, I don't like those drugs. I don't take, I took it once and done. That was it. But then I found like a little bit of whiskey. Next thing you know, I'm able to relax. And then finally I can actually drift off a little yeah. bit. That might be bad. I'm an alcoholic. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> so, so what you might be noticing, there's a pattern there and being able to, um, to figure out what that pattern is for people with, with insomnia to figure out like how to calm your mind. Um, so I used to like take Ambien and set, et cetera, which I hate. Cause it leaves you like feeling kind of hungover in the morning. Like, and what brain digs it, it also interferes with your REM sleep, which is super, which we, we which you really need. You know, with your part of your sleep cycle, there's a you have 90 minute cycles when you sleep, and you go in uh, and you intermediate between um, deep sleep and REM. REM is the lightest sleep, and um, that's also where you dream. And oftentimes, like alcohol, ambient, these different things here interfere with REM. So you get that deep sleep, but then you wake up and you're like, Okay, I slept for seven or eight hours, but I'm exhausted and I'm like brain fog, et cetera. So alcohol interferes. You might fall asleep very quickly with it, but it puts you right into deep sleep, but it interferes with the process of the REM. And oftentimes what happens then because of the sugar, your body processes that alcohol into sugar. It then wakes you up after a certain amount of time because you're processing sugar now. So you're not you know, waking up. And that interferes with your sleep pattern. So alcohol is definitely bad for your sleep. So if you're going to drink, drink early in the evening and go to bed sober. What's with the addiction part to it? Like I work at a gym facility. So one thing that a lot of people don't know about is at working at this facility, I started to notice there's a lot of elderly people that come in, but they'll do an insane massive amount of cardio. And then some type of check mark goes off in their head. They're like, I guess I can drink now because I just did all that. I can now get my treat, which is the drink. And it's not saying they're alcoholics. These are a lot of people that work in bars because I live in a bar resort place. But I remember this one lady, I was like, oh, you got the whole day. You just worked out for two hours and now you're able to go home at 6 a.m. So you got your whole day ahead of you. And she's like, I'm going to go drink some margaritas and then shimmied out the door. And I was just like, that's somebody's life. But to her, it was like she got a reward or a check mark that boxed it off there. I'm just like, what's the addiction part in this that causes you every day to want to go do something? I mean, enough to where you're able to do two hours on a Stairmaster just so you can go home and drink. Like that's the checkbox thing where I'm like, there's got to be something about that that attracts us in some sort of way. Yeah, yeah. Oftentimes it's how alcoholics frame it, which is the reward. You get this little award here for doing something, you know, uh, they make little goals for themselves and then go out and drink heavily, like going to the gym and they're like, oh, I'm virtuous. Now I can go, even though you're destroying your liver by doing this, by drinking heavily. So yeah, just because you go to the gym, et cetera. Yeah, sure. You might be burning off all those calories. Alcohol does have a lot of calories. It's, it's all carbs. And so, yeah, people can gain, who drink a lot can gain a lot of weight, et cetera. But um you're still wrecking your body. And of course you're placing a huge number of carcinogens in your body. So, which can lead to throat cancer, mouth cancer, colon cancer, et cetera. And one of the reasons as well now, like they've moved colonoscopies recommendations. It was always the age of 50 and now they moved it down to 45 uh, in part because of alcohol, but also because so many people eat a lot of processed meats, whether that's bacon, pepperoni on your pizza, et cetera. Um, a lot of those things have carcinogens in them and they result in colon cancer. So, when you get to be 45, now you get to get a colonoscopy. 
<laughs> when, uh, I mean, did they know about all the damages? I mean, or at least how addicting it was back then as well. So, I mean, people were heavily drinking. I mean, when did – I figured it's a market now. I mean, that's the whole thing about it now. We've gone the complete opposite direction from banning it to the point where they market different flavors of alcohol. Now it seems like it's the most to get you like how do we get close to that 100% proof? Like there's a moonshine that they sell in my alcohol store that's like 125 proof. Where I'm like, look, I don't know math very well. But I know that's a little bit more than the overall 100%. And I don't know how they calculate that. But now it's became like how far can you go to where something you take one sip and you're just done because it's so alcoholic. I mean it's just so much alcohol in it. So I just wonder like I mean they found a market for it obviously to where they can start doing that. But I mean is that, what does that mean like for society a little bit? I mean did they know about it back then as well too to the point where if we ban it there's going to be a larger market for us and then we can just open up the floodgates but they realized how bad the market was because when they banned it how much it actually hurt them so did they notice the addiction properties to it to the point we're at now where they everyone knows alcohol is addicting to the point where you can't even shut down liquor stores because you can get somebody killed yeah, yeah so the, the temperance movement understood you know they didn't call it addiction back then they call it being a drunkard and that sounds better than addiction yeah, yeah, the words of somebody just changed. But, you know, they, they did see that alcohol was destroying people's lives, in particular men. And how this was really having a negative impact was on families. And this is why, like, the Women's Christian Temperance Union formed, because this is a way of, to protect families from domestic abuse, spending up all their paycheck and coming home, beating the children and behaving very, very badly. And so the temperance movement thought, if we can get people to stop drinking, everyone will become you know, sober and middle class and families will thrive, et cetera. Uh, all they were looking at, though, if you, if you remember, we're taking like econ, like econ 101, supply versus demand. And so largely what they were targeting with the 18th Amendment was the supply chain. So, for example, the, the, even the name of the organization that pushed this through, the Anti-Saloon League, they thought we can shut down the saloons. This is the end of the supply chain. And then on top of that, we can then banning the, the uh, manufacture, transportation, and sale of alcohol. This is all dealing with the supply side of the equation, not the demand side. You know, they just don't simply thought Americans will simply just sober up. They'll finish up whatever they have at home. They never, by the way, uh, criminalized personal possession, which is so interesting and so different from the drug wars that we're fighting today. So uh, they thought simply most Americans who are law-abiding citizens would simply just stop drinking once they'd finished up what they had at home. And, and that was that. But they ignore the demand side of the equation. When there, when there's still demand in the marketplace, someone's going to supply it because there's money to be made, right? Now, you mentioned one of the myths about the women's temperance movement, but is there, is there a lot of strong correlation to some of that, I guess, propaganda that was released against like maybe some of the counterculture stuff, or at least the drug war? I mean, I, I know a lot about Timothy Leary. I know a lot about the whole LSD thing. I know a lot about the 60s and 70s in that era, but there were propaganda tactics to get people to stop doing certain things. I mean, do you see that with the same thing with alcohol as well, too? I mean, I look at the market for alcohol, at least back then. I mean, I wouldn't say the tactics. Let's start with the propaganda stuff, and I'll ask you this question in a minute. But the propaganda tactics, are they similar with the ones with the drug war? Yeah, yeah probably even more extreme here on the on, on the drug wars. Um, although there's not so much today, just because we're losing the drug wars, and there's many of us questioning, like... Everything's going to be legal, and that's scary. That's very scary. It is, yeah, but at the same time, having more regulations and treating the issue as a health problem rather than as a criminal problem, I'm all in favor of that. Yeah. You know, like let's stop throwing people in jail just for using drugs. You know, it just it makes no sense. And incarcerating people is so expensive. Treatment is a fraction of the cost. You know, of course, then the flip side is people have to want to be treated and have to want to get sober, which not everyone does. You know, so it's a but Europe, Europe handles it much much better than we do. 
by treating as a health crisis rather than a criminal crisis. Yeah. Um, it is fascinating to see how propaganda has worked its way through. I mean, modern propaganda was largely born during World War One. You know, you think of like the really famous, you know, Uncle Uncle Sam wants you. Remember that poster? You know, it's just the most famous propaganda poster in American history. And as a way of changing people's minds or supporting a certain cause, um, the dry cause certainly used a lot of propaganda and so on. And you see that proceeding all the way through the 1930s and 40s onward, even though the country had rejected prohibition, but now you get the 1930s. Now there's this whole war on, <clears throat> quote, marijuana, you know. <laughs> so um, there's a, what, 1934, some movie called Reefer Madness. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh my gosh, you have to go watch this movie. It's total propaganda against pot, against cannabis. You know, now we don't use the word marijuana so much anymore because you realize, okay, they're trying to attach a stigma by using a Spanish word, by trying to st stigmatize recent immigrants in the country and make it sound like, oh, it's a foreign thing. So nowadays you might notice all these places that are opening up dispensaries and so on, they use the word, the Latin word cannabis instead, you know, cause they're trying to take away that stigma of, and you might be stunned, maybe not, maybe not how <laughs> many people come out as pot smokers or, you know, gummy takers or, you know, rice crispy people, et cetera, you know, whatever, whatever you want, it's there. And it's more and more, it's becoming legal. Um, we legalized recreational use of, of cannabis in New Mexico here uh, April 1st last year. Uh, that is to say uh, 2022. Are you a little bit nervous about the, I guess, the legalization of it? Like I had Ben Court on the show, if you've ever heard of him. He's debated like Carl Hart, I think his name is, multiple times. Now, I recommend Carl Hart. I liked his work about a lot of things, but we do demonize way too many things, which causes people to go into those things. I think it needs to be like a healthy balance. But also when it scares me about the legalization of these types of things is that back in my day, two bowls got you high. I'm, not, I'm only 25, but in my grandpa's day or my dad's day, it was like 20 joints off the dirt weed and all that type of stuff. Now it's like a kid can get a thousand milligram edible cake pop type deal. And I'm like, look, you're going to have some kids that are going to take that as their first one. Sometimes I got dosed to 500 and I've, I'm not a big pot guy anymore. So I took that 500 and I went down like a really bad trip on some things where I'm wondering, I'm like, I mean, how do we have a balance of like at least a bit of education on it? I mean, I get there's more legalization and there's more knowledge on it, but also, I mean, are the corporate industries really caring about giving out the proper like education on the thing as well too? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting to see there. Um, the, at least here in, in New Mexico, seeing we're having this gold rush going on and not all these companies are going to survive. Everyone kind of ran to the door to like set up shop, et cetera. And so it's all largely mom and pops and, you know, companies that have, you know, two or three store locations. So it's not really, I wouldn't call it corporate, at least not yet, but there could be a day where consolidation takes place. But uh, certainly the education is part of the factors that are in there. And this is what I'm, I'm totally in favor of. It's like, like when you buy alcohol, you see right there in the can or on the, on the, on the bottle, what the ABV is, alcohol by, by, by volume. And so, you know, like, okay, if there's an imperial stout that says 9.1% and I've got to drive afterwards, I'm like, nope, not going to get that one. I'm making an educated educational decision about like, I don't want to drink something that's going to get me that drunk so quickly, you know? So being able to like learn from like a cannabis store, um, Hey, I just want something that's going to help me sleep. Versus, you know, I, I'm not interested in getting baked myself. I don't really like getting high. So, you know, having an educated workforce that can educate the consumer on this, I think is very, is a lot better than say someone buying it on the, you know, corner market somewhere where you have actually no idea what you're actually buying. You know, it could be something that's crazy high as you experienced, 
or it could be coriander seeds, you know, yeah. <laughs> mixed in with other stuff, you know, and you just got scammed. A good old bag of oregano. Buying it in the corner versus say old- buying it in a place that's regulated and when it's legalized and then so on. So, and this is a huge problem now in our country with like fentanyl. You know, yeah, fentanyl is really in fact a, a drug that's used for legitimate purposes in the healthcare setting, but the Mexican drug cartels are now exporting all this. It's really, really difficult to stop because it's so tiny. These tiny little pills they can smuggle them in and anything, and we are just killing wholesale numbers of people right now with it. And the cartels don't care that they're killing their customers. Why isn't really? I, well, the first time I've ever seen a fentanyl, at least news talk about fentanyl was they, they blamed walmart for it about a couple months ago but i think it's between the ages of 18 to 49 there were like i mean in, in two years there was like over like two hundred thousand deaths or something like that it was something a ridiculous number my actual uncle died in january of a fentanyl overdose so it was like i mean it, it's it, the first time i ever saw media report on it and i was just like why are you guys but they blamed walmart and i go is why is nobody else talking about this this is a big issue it's a large amount of people that are going and it's like we seem to always have an issue with one thing but we're never taught the education i mean back in when i was in school it was there and that honestly i think put more kids on drugs than it did to steer them away from it because it really never gave them the full i don't know they said you take this you're going to be a loser you're going to be all this type of stuff but then everyone I know from the class that got that introduction ended up taking it, and they're probably still on drugs as well, too. So it was like we're having a very bad education on drugs and everything, and if we don't talk about it at all, then we don't know about it, and then when we get on it, we don't know if it's wrong or not. Yeah, we create these taboos, and I think that's a big part, part, part of it, like you know, like with the D.A.R.E. program. Rather than, say, educating people about what your choices are, this is why I'm not in favor at all of abstinence-only education like around sex. It's like, no, teach kids. Here's what – you know, here's what the consequences are, you know, broken hearts, pregnancy, STIs, et cetera. But, you know, it's also your right to know what your body's doing, et cetera. And I, I, I think that's far more giving, empowering people with knowledge so they can make good choices. I think that's the key thing right there. Um, yeah, yes, the deaths are getting a lot of, of um, a lot of press right now around fentanyl and so on. And yet you combine methamphetamine death, heroin death, fentanyl deaths, it's still only I think it's only like a third of the number of people who are dying from alcohol. Alcohol is still a huge killer and way more killer than we're experiencing, even with all the highly promoted or highly sensationalized number of people who are dying from drugs. Alcohol is still a much, much bigger killer than drug overdoses is. Just drug overdoses is getting all the press. Does that is that just because everyone knows the risks with alcohol as well, too? But I mean, how do they let advertisements from alcohol companies be able to do that as well too like what are the i think the united states is only one of two countries that has advertisements for pharmaceutical drugs the other one i think is new zealand but we're the only ones everyone else thinks it's weird yeah and it's we didn't start really allowing that you know until the early 2000s for 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 drugs which is so interesting so i remember beforehand they would like have to like talk they'd have advertisements but they would talk around a topic with with the you know, what the drug would do for you, et cetera. They would kind of, prop, you know, use propaganda, but without explaining ex- exactly what this drug is for. You know, it's just so interesting. But, you know, so advertising is, 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 you know, itself is a form of propaganda, you know. Does abstinence actually ever work? Like, you're not, you're not, you said you're not for abstinence. I'm not, I don't think I'm for abstinence either because I feel like that creates suppression and then it causes someone to really go 100% to the opposite way that they were before. But, I mean, does that ever actually really truly work? I don't really think so. I mean, I think I have friends who are in recovery from like alcohol and for them, abstinence is the only choice for them because we, we believe, you know, once someone becomes an alcoholic, there's no recovering from that. You're always going to be an alcoholic. 
and so they you know learn how to uh, how to stop drinking and have to uh, have to abstain entirely. But as far as an abstinence message societally, I don't think abstinence works. Rather, I think education is what's needed, and giving people the full information so they can make good decisions. I think that's 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 my belief personally. I mean, in the position that you're in right now, at least perspective wise, I mean, do you find that you're you have a lot of education on these certain things as well, but you're, do you find that like, I don't know that it was a good route for you to be able to research everything you did before to get to where you're at now. Do you feel like you're better understood as a whole? Like I I'm, I'm interested in it because I find that learning through perspective and history and everything helps me enhance more about my knowledge on things. But also they say knowledge is a curse as well too. If you know too much about something, a lot of people just don't, I don't care what's in the drink. I just want to drink it. And they go like that. I go, yeah, but if you know the health effects from it as well too, I think it's like between two to three weeks or something, you're, uh, for smoking, it's lungs. The end, the capacity for lungs goes out a little bit more by a certain percentage. And then there's a bunch of things, like even with uh, weight loss, and then um, I think they call it beer belly as well too. There's all like they have it graphed out for like it shows you like how long this takes, how long this takes, and how long this takes. I'm a big fitness guy. I see that. I go, you know, I don't really feel like taking that. You know, drinking a pina colada or anything with a lot of sugar in it. Yeah, yeah. But oftentimes though, it's the the, the short term advantage of like I want this right now. I'll worry about the consequences later on. You know, that's now a future Robbie problem, is what I say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you're always going to fight against that. And same thing for like people who smoke cigarettes. Cigarettes aren't going to kill you right away. They will kill you eventually. But oh, that's down the road. That's just years from now. So meanwhile, I want a cigarette right now, right? And that's the problem. Is that people want that fix right now? And so the the moment always beats out over the long term. You, my grandma's generation, she called herself a martini girl, which was, she always talked about, she was a housewife, but she would always drink martinis all the time. When I mentioned that, someone said I was being sexist. I don't think that's sexist. I'm pretty sure it's proven that there's a lot of people in that history, in that time period, housewives that drank like martinis and things, because that's what they did. They were, they stayed at home and drank martinis. Okay. So it's not myth or anything. I know. I mean, you know, we all watched Mad Men when it was on and (laughs) you saw the unhappy, uh, unhappy housewife and Betty. Betty Draper, yeah, and so on. I, of course, that's a um, that's a fictional character, and so on. But it's also kind of realistic for the time of the '60s, you know. Now, after like the prohibition stuff, like when did you see the? I guess that what would you say the best era for alcohol is, or like when it was like kind of like more influenced, but it wasn't overly abused, you know, like when it was more of a society thing. Because we have it in our movies all the time. James Bond seems like it's a not this generation, or not in these now times, where all the James Bond movies seem like they go back a little bit before, like more of a time of like class where you're going out with martinis all the time is the fancy drink, which I don't know why. I feel like now everybody has a beer in their hand. Yeah, because <laughs> because beer has gotten classy, right? Um, I still think right now is probably still the best time to be a drinker um, for a number of reasons. Um, the number of choices that we have as consumers is pretty amazing. Um, the quality of products has gotten a lot better because there's a lot of competition that's out there. So if you want to make alcohol, you may have to make something that's good, you know, that are going to appeal to people. There's also better education out there and people are making better decisions, I think, ultimately, whether it's, hey, I'm going to call a Lyft or an Uber to get me home tonight, or I'm just going to choose not to drink. And you're seeing that increasingly among, um, especially among Gen Zers who are, you know, taking the sober curious route of, you know, I don't think I want to drink. It's not as weird to be a designated driver. That's what's interesting to me. I've always seen on many movies where if you're like a designated driver, you end up getting peer pressured into something, but I'm usually a designated driver and I go somewhere, they'll hand me a little small little glass and I go, I'm, they go, oh no, we know you're DD, but it's filled with water and we want you to participate. And I was like, 
that's so interesting. Like usually before you're the guy just sitting there like, what the hell do I do? I got to sit at a bar while all these people get drunk and, you know, get their social lubricant. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting if you're at a happy hour event or something, there's always this, gosh, I don't have something in my hand. Whereas everyone else has got a glass of wine or, you know, a beer or whatever. So sometimes just having, if you feel that peer pressure, just go get a glass of water and hold it. And that way you, Hey, you're participating with everyone else. And, uh, but you're not actually drinking other than rehydrating yourself if it's water, you know? So <laughs> what are what are your thoughts on the craft beer industry? Like those self kind of created companies? I think it's cool. I know oftentimes they are local businesses. So they're local employees uh, and they're plowing their money right back into the community. So, you know, I've got one about two blocks away from me called Second Street Brewing. Uh, it's kind of my go-to place to go. And, you know, I can walk over there and I can walk back home. And so it's good. And they've got good food as I, well. So, when did the creation... Yeah, I was about to say, when did the creation of multiple flavors come in? I just had a, there's a beer the other, I think it was like last week or something like that. It was a chocolate peanut butter beer. It didn't taste like chocolate peanut butter that much, but it was called Purple Monkey Dishwasher. And I'm just like, I don't know when this all started before. I mean, when I was a kid, I just remembered it was like Bud Light. It was this type of stuff. That's what my parents drank. And then I'm now I'm entering kind of the world of it. And I'm looking around and I'm like, there's like coffee beers. There's all these types of things. I'm like, it's interesting that, you know, even if it's a self-owned company or someone started producing their own beer. Maybe start making these out there. And I got a whole host of flavors to now where some of the big corporations are like, we should expand out to make multiple different flavors. It's interesting to see. I mean, there's always a lot of experimentation because people are trying to differentiate. You know, everyone makes an IPA, everyone makes a lager. So then you've got you know, a certain subset of fans who want to try some, pardon my French, some weird shit, you know. And <laughs> um the, the craft brewing the craft brewing revolution really got going in the 1970s. It started out in Sonoma County, yeah, uh, when I was a kid. And I, I'd say it's really two phases. The, the first one was this: all these guys, uh, we, we legalized uh, Dunner Jimmy Carter. We legalized uh, home brewing, and that was a huge factor in all these little small breweries kind of popping up. And many of them failed by the 1980s, but a number of them survived. You know, like the. Um, the, the Boston uh, Brewing Company, which is, you know, Sam, Sam Adams, uh, Sierra Nevada as well. Those are two major small craft breweries that have now major, major markets. And then you got to the time of the Great Recession, and that, was, that formed then what I call Beer 2.0, where a whole bunch of people kind of shifted towards things that were lower cost because we were going through a huge recession. And that provided new opportunity for all these small brewers. And so now you've got craft breweries just everywhere. <laughs> Every town has them. Every time there's a new urban center built, there's always a couple of breweries that pop up in there along with coffee places and so on. So it's kind of cool because it's always usually local markets that they're targeting and a local audience. And of course, they're hiring local people and those local tax revenues get spent locally. So um, I, I think it's kind of a, a, an upside, especially if you have a place you can walk or ride your bike to, you know. That was Jimmy Carter that did that? Jimmy Carter, exactly. And, and he was, uh, I think, one of our handful of presidents who did not drink. So George W. Bush as well, he turned sober when he was 40. And I think Rutherford B. Hayes in the 1870s, he didn't drink either. His wife was known as Lemonade Lucy for serving lemonade at the White House rather than alcohol at events. <laughs> Is it interesting to you that some of those small craft breweries are able to kind of make it through like, I mean, I would say we're in a pretty tight capitalistic world, but it's just interesting to see like the entrepreneurship is still kind of there as well too. Like we're craft I mean, do you see it really affect the alcohol industry when it comes to small and business? Like, I mean, I know there's a big market for certain obvious brands. I feel bad for Corona because I know that shit took a hit um, because nobody wanted to buy that beer for a while. But it seems like, I mean, I'm always hearing about a new IPA and always seeing a cool one somewhere that I've never seen before. I'm like, it just seems like this one's like an open market still. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's competition and it's culture. You know, culture is always moving forward. It's never static. People are always experimenting with new things and trying to come up with a new idea that's going to differentiate them. And ultimately, that's to the benefit of the consumer, I believe. So the, the fact that people are continuing to invest in good beer and so on. You know, brewing is a capital-intense industry. I mean, you need to buy, so is distilling. Uh, you, you need to get a, a big, big building for it. You have to get all the kinds of special equipment, which is expensive. Um, you have to have a staff that knows how to operate it and so on. There's a lot of things that can go wrong with it. So it's expensive to produce these things. Now, I wanted to ask about some of your tour stuff as well, too. Do you find that you get like a lot of reception from the public? I mean, at least have an interest in it, like how I have an interest, just because it's around us culturally. It's just it's the significant thing that's just around us that a lot of people don't really know the history about. I still barely know the history about it. But to me, it's just interesting when I'm looking at something. I'm like, at one point, this was illegal and now it's massively legal. So it's just how did that all start to happen? I mean, do you find people when they go on your tours are kind of looking for those answers as well, too? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Um, that, that's one of the key reasons I think why, why Prohibition tours do were liberated well, because so many people just have this huge open question mark, like, what were they thinking? How was this ever going to work when we're such a drinking society as, as Americans? And the fact that we changed the Constitution not once, but twice to deal with alcohol is just leaves a lot of people flabbergasted. And that was just a century ago. It's not that long ago. I know. Do, do you think that that w- would have ever worked, though, that they could actually, if there's like a any possibility that banning all alcohol would have actually worked when they did it back then? I think if they had taken a more moderate step, that that possibly could have worked. It was always going to be an enforcement issue. So the Anti-Saloon League was really, really naive in thinking that Americans would simply just stop drinking once they had finished up whatever they had at home. And they also took a zero tolerance attitude towards alcohol. In other words, and this was what really stunned everyone because they had all voted for the 18th Amendment during World War I, thinking it was the right thing to do. They thought they were banning liquor. That's what they thought. They thought we'd still have beer. And then suddenly in 1920, when Prohibition begins, everyone's like, huh, is that what we, what we voted for? And the Anti-Saloon League, you know, they heard a ton of complaints from congressmen. They're like, wait, all of our constituents still want beer, et cetera. And they said, well, it's just an education process. They'll get used to it. The public will get used to it. Um, at the same time, then all the, the bootleggers started right up because they realized, look, there's still a demand for this product, but they weren't providing beer because... Beer is not nearly as profitable as, say, distilled spirits is because it's so concentrated. Mm-hmm. And that's why during Prohibition, why they were producing so much, you know, bathtub gin and whiskey and so on, because you can dilute it endlessly and then sell it. It's so much more profitable. That's so weird to me that some people just wanted to ban it because it was liquor and not ban the beer. I'm, I would be the opposite. I don't like beer at all, but I like a whiskey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. But whiskey was the original trouble problem, but starting back in the 1820s, just because of the high concentration of alcohol and the all kinds of problems. But yeah, yeah, just I think when you take the zero tolerance attitude, things are not going to turn out well. And same thing for the drug wars. You know, we've we've for the longest time, I think we're kind of at a in a gray area right now because everyone realizes the drug wars are unwinnable. You know, there's always going to be a big portion of Americans that are going to want to take drugs, and there's going to be someone that's, that's going to supply that. And so I think you really saw that starting literally with the Obama administration towards cannabis, just like the state started legalizing it and the federal government did nothing other than they don't allow cannabis companies to participate in the banking system. That's why you always had to bring cash, you know, but, but otherwise it's sort of like, you know, there's nothing to gain politically by getting involved, trying to stop this legalization effort. So they've just basically just stepped aside and just like, 
we'll just let things kind of naturally happen, you know. Um, I would like to see the, the, the end of the war on drugs. It's just not a winnable war. And it's just like we're, we should take a totally different tact towards drugs themselves. There's still lots of scary drugs that are out there. I mean, fentanyl is terrifying. Crystal meth wrecks people's lives. I mean, bath a lot of things salts. that shouldn't. What's it? Bath salts. Yeah, bath salts. I mean, people shouldn't be taking these things. But how we treat it should be a lot different than, say, just throwing people away into jail, you know, which is super, super expensive, you know. 100% agree. A guy who's in jail for life on pot right now, and he's looking around and everything's legal, and he's like, what the hell happened, man? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, pot smokers tend not to be violent people. They tend not to get off the couch, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever think so it'll- pot does. It's a de-inhibition de- drug, so you're just like a demotivational drug. So you tend to like, okay, man, where's the Cheetos? Do you ever think that it'll be like dry counties like it is with alcohol, but with drugs? Like certain, I mean, there's certain certain places now that have everything legalized. Like my buddy lives in Oregon. That's all legalized, which is insane. He talks about how crazy it is with that type of stuff, which I think they're going to try and correct that at some point. But I'm just wondering if there's going to be, there's obviously going to be massive legalization for pop, but I just feel like some states that have more of those like religious values I was talking about that have like a really strong ingrained family kind of catholic or christian background that aren't just going to want that at all i still have friends even though we live in a state where it's legalized where they go no that's the devil's lettuce and i'm like bro i'm like you can get it on the internet if you really wanted it i mean you can really get it anywhere and there's plenty of medical benefits to it but they just consider like they'll even cut off friends on that aspect of things Mm -hmm. i'm sure it's gonna be a tug of war for a very very long time i think there's gonna be a lot of states i mean i think like oklahoma which really which really struggled to legalize alcohol. Um, I think 1959, they changed the constitution to even allow alcohol in there. And there's still, you know, heavy, heavy Baptist presence. So there's always going to be that pushback against it. And it's, it's, it's a legitimate part of the debate. Should we legalize this or not? What are, what are the aspects that we should control? You know, um, at the end of the day, I, I, I'm a realist. And you know, I, I think simply just creating taboos is not very particularly very healthy. And likewise, just throwing people in jail is not healthy when perhaps we should look at a different way of handling the war on drugs. You know, drugs are just going to be there going forward. And there's always going to be a market for it. And there's always going to be people taking it, you know. So how we handle that, hopefully, number one, saving people's lives from overdoses. That's, that's super important. But going on from there, how do we help them to get over addiction? That's a big factor right there. And I mean, my favorite comedian, Ron White, uh, stopped drinking because he took ayahuasca, went to a retreat, and they gave him ayahuasca. That's his whole thing. His whole comedy career was based off of, I mean, he's got a tequila out and everything. Um, I think it's Numero One or something like that. But he changed, and I saw that. I go, okay, there's definitely benefits to this. If you're trying to get someone off alcohol, I'm not saying everyone needs to not drink alcohol. I'm not starting the prohibition again. I'm just saying that, obviously, with some people that are really looking for change, and it is very, very difficult to get out of addiction. I mean, I went to school for chemical dependency, so I've seen, and I've been to alcohol meetings, I've done all those types of things. I've studied this, and I look at it. It is difficult. I've lost friends to it, overdoses and things of this sort. So I'm looking at, like, I mean, psychedelics being talked about now as being something that could be legalized. If they can find a clinic to be able to do so, they already got like 900, or not 900, 90 something million dollars invested into it, which doesn't sound like a lot, but to start up one small clinic, it's just about doing it in the proper setting. So where, how do we deploy it to be able to give someone this type of trip that could actually change their life in a sense without it going bad or horribly wrong, which is what a lot of people fear about. So I think the tides are turning on that. Yeah, it's really fascinating to see. And this is where I think regulation comes in and compassion for other people. You know, there's certainly been, especially with all our endless wars, the war on terror and, and so on, we have a 
you know, we're, we're seeing these huge rates of suicide among, among veterans. And I'm, I'm a veteran myself. Um, I, I never had to go to war, but, um, you know, the, the sheer number of suicides because people have PTSD. And this is where, where there's some evidence that some of these things, whether it's ecstasy or, di or different hallucinogenics might actually help with P PTSD in a supervised setting. You know, I'm like, hey, okay, we need to learn more about this. And, you know, uh, do scientific studies on this and whatnot. This is, I think, kind of promising. And this is ultimately about saving people's lives and helping them be able to move forward in their lives. It's, it's, I mean, it's so important for the education aspect of things because we don't ever have the conversation if people are just so demonized against it. I mean, that's the best part about having like propaganda stuff. Like the amount of war propaganda that was out there would cause you to demonize another side just because, oh, they're communist. And then you can't talk to them. It's like, well, what are you labeling communists? Like, what are we talking about here? And that word immediately, nobody wants to touch it. They just want to put their hands up and walk away and not have the conversation about it to even understand if that person is what they're being labeled as. And that's such a dangerous route. Yeah, and I totally, totally agree. Yeah, versus say trying to, trying to know the deeper understanding, but it's, it's easier to throw words at people that may or may not apply. I remember, you know, more recent terms that are, um, the right wing accusation towards anyone on the left is socialist. And we're like, wait a second. Even um, liberals kind of like a, a dirty word. Now they turned it into that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting, but it's, again, it's a propaganda word, you know, it's sort of like, does it actually reflect the current president's positions? I mean, not even close, you know, <laughs> neither Obama and yet they get accused of being socialists. I'm like, this is not socialism, you know, but it's, I mean, that divide though, that's always there. I don't know. It just keeps getting worse in some aspects of things. I mean, like when it comes to the change of things, I know always people talk about like, we could save the world. I'm not saying that at all, but when I'm looking at things, I'm like having the conversation can, and I think like there's a lot of people out there that demonize something. I go, what about making them try it? I mean, not forcing anybody to drugs, obviously, but just kind of like talking about like, do you want to try this and set you up in a setting to be able to do so? I feel like with the number of clinics that could be open for psychedelics and things of the sort, you probably have a lot of people that would change their opinion if they were actually a place for them to be able to do so that's where i'm for the like the whole corporate corporatization of those types of things i just want to make sure it doesn't get too lost from i guess the original connection with the person you know too many business models inflate too big next you know it's more about the money that they're getting in rather than the actual individual person mm -hmm. yeah and what is interesting is, is kind of you know change is always slow in the united states especially because we're such a which I had such a heterogeneous society. There's, you know, getting consensus around any issue is really, really difficult. But you're seeing this even on a bipartisan basis now that increasingly people are wanting to see change on the war on drugs. It's just not working. It's not winnable. We've been fighting it since, you know, Richard Nixon when I was a little kid, you know, and it's not winnable. I think more and more people are recognizing this, that maybe we need to take a different tact in how we're addressing drug consumption here within our country. Um, certainly there's lots and lots and lots of right-wingers who are now pot smokers or gummy takers or whatever, you know, it's sort of, sort of like I've, I've met plenty of them, you know, um, and it's that libertarian side of the right that is like, you know, let me do my thing and I'm just doing it at home, leave me alone, you know, kind of thing. So that, that uh, I think also overlaps together with the left, which, which has this, you know, hey, we're throwing all these people in jail, as well as the libertarian right as well, asks these fundamental questions like, is this does this make sense to throw these people into jail, which is so expensive and incarcerating people? You basically took a citizen who could still be functioning, making a living, and suddenly they're producing nothing. And we have to guard them and feed them and insure them, et cetera. It's super expensive putting people in jail, especially for low-level drug offenses. I mean, it makes no sense. Absolutely no sense. You, I mean, do you have any hope for it? Like in the next, if you could ballpark me, you could say 100 years, 200 years, 50 years, 10 years. But I mean, that we're ever going to not have types of controversial subjects like this, it just seems like even with like how 
bad politics is right now to even talk about with anybody. But all these subjects, and in my opinion, like maybe because I'm getting interested in a little bit more, just diving through history, I see it's there. I've talked to people who are part of the counterculture movement who were making magazines like The Seed that was bringing out a bunch of like anti-cops type stuff. But then now that they're older, they look back on it and they go, we were both kind of wrong. And it's like interesting to see that. But then as you look through history, there's always types of revolutions, not revolutions, but there's always types of counterculture that start going in controversial subjects as well, too, where there's always two sides fighting against a certain thing. I see that now with the marijuana stuff, and now I see it transitioning to something else like psychedelics now, which it's just interesting to me. I mean, do you think that's always going to be there? Do you think just how we are as people, just two sides? Yeah. Again, it's the, the heterogeneous nature of our society. You know, it's really hard to get national unity on questions because we're 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 so divided over so many different things. And a lot of it's just tribalism, you know, like, well, my tribe believes this and your tribe believes that, you know. So we have all this us versus them thing in our in our in our country, which is really unhealthy, but it's a big part of it. You know, we're not Denmark with a small population that's largely homogenous. You know, we we're an immigrant society with lots and lots and lots of different um, opinions and, and different values over different things. So it's difficult. So reaching a national consensus on things is very, very rare, you know, and we've always been super, super, super partisan. I mean, that's from the very beginning. I mean, George Washington warned us against this in his farewell address. Um, you know, the most supreme example of partisanship in our country was the Civil War, the breakdown of the country, where we split in two over the question of slavery. You know, that was the worst, you know, where we actually went to war against each other. Um, so we're not nearly as bad as that today, even though it seems pretty bad right now from a, from, from a tribalistic standpoint. And this is strictly what it is. It's just, if you got together from people across the aisle in a small town, wherever else, you'd be like, you discover, wow, I've got 99% in common with these people. They're actually really nice. But it's just all tribalism, you know, when you learn their political opinions and suddenly you're like, how can you vote for that man? You know, et cetera. You know, it's just, it's just, it's kind of this incredible thing in our society where we are. But um, so reaching consensus is very, very difficult. But over the long term, I, I think as more and more people are becoming more open minded about the war on drugs and about the, you know, all drugs have been placed in one giant category as sin, you know, it's against God's will. And I think that's really coming around or changing. After all, everyone practically on this phone call on this on this podcast today is using some kind of drugs, whether it's aspirin or something to lower your cholesterol or, you know, whatever. You know, we all depended upon pharmaceuticals for ones, you know, even caffeine, you know, which my, that's my favorite. That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I abused the hell out of that one. I can tell you that much, but yeah, it's and, it, and it's a drug. It yeah. is a drug. And we're all addicted. Like if you don't get your daily caffeine, you're going to get a splitting headache. They withdrawal. say the daily is 250. I'm like, yo, I drink three energy. I, I used to drink 12 energy drinks a day. I had to cut it down. Uh, my doctor was like, how the hell is your B12? Like triple the amount i think it's a daily's intake supposed to be like 90 between 200 and i was at 1500 and he was like i don't know how you're doing this i was like that explains so much i was getting paranoid my hair was growing really really long like fast every two weeks i was getting a haircut They're like you just got a haircut i'm like i'm telling you i see it in the zoom call you see my hair throughout all the episodes just grow longer fingernails were growing long turns out it's the b12 i was like yeah that's insane but yeah my doctor i had told me to cut it back so i'm down to i think two maybe three but that's 300 milligrams per energy drink which your daily intake is only supposed to be 250 and and this may be a factor in your um in your inability to fall asleep i've had that since i was a child before I yeah yeah but but yeah but caffeine keeps you awake actually caffeine keep does the opposite with my adhd it makes me go to sleep a little bit i get drowsy mm -hmm. after it 
Hmm. You got to look that up. I got, I've had an ADHD guy got on here before to talk about all that. But yeah, caffeine does the opposite. But when it comes to all the counties that are dry right now about alcohol, the ones that are left, do you think, I mean, there's always going to be one or two, right? That are just going to stay yeah. out. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, 100 years from now, there'll still be more, you know, but there'll, there'll be fewer than there are now, you know. God, I would hate to live there. Can you think that they, we tried to ban that? And that's like the bread make. That's the conversation thing right there. That's how you unite people is with alcohol. You yeah, just go, exactly. Let's have a beer and talk about it. Exactly. In that sense, alcohol is really good because, again, it reduces inhibitions and then people actually converse with each other. So, um, yeah, as it's, it's like tourism becomes a big, big deal and, you know, alcohol related tourism, it started with Napa, Napa Valley with wine. If you ever go out there, it's just stunningly beautiful. It's why they film the whole Scream series in Napa because you're like, this is this astonishing setting. It's so just like, oh my gosh, so romantic. And then you have this, this really funny horror series that they set in <laughs> Napa, you know? <laughs> and that kind of started tourism around, you know, people like hiring a driver and going to winery to winery. You see that with brewing as well. And now distilling has picked up on that too. So I remember a few years ago when the county where Jack Daniels is in, is in, in Tennessee, they had to get, it was a dry county. And here they are, Jack Daniels. You can go tour the, the facility but you can't buy any alcohol and you can't sample anything. So the state had to change the law. The county is still dry, but now you can go visit Jack Daniels and buy a bottle, et cetera. So they created a little loophole just for Jack Daniels because <laughs> because of tourism. And it's a major, major source of revenue for people going to visit the Jack Daniels factory in Tennessee. So I think it's so interesting. I mean, the money aspect ultimately, oftentimes it's going gonna, it's gonna to win out because it makes no sense to ban these things when you're losing out on all this tax revenue and jobs that come with that as well, you know? People love money. Uh, it's it's crucial. I mean, money is a tool. We all need it. You know, every county needs it to fund the schools and the roads and you know, teacher salaries, environment, etc. And that's you know, alcohol is part of it. Yeah. Well, Mr. Peck, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links, any social links, anything where your books are located as well, too? Yeah, I've got a website which is GarrettPeck.com. Uh, Garrett is spelled with two R's and two D's. And I've got a little contact me feature on there if you want to reach out to me. I've got all my tours up there. And I've written eight books working on number nine here right now. So I've got all my books up there as well. I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.